Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Victor Rice didn't expect to play bass in a ska band, but with a little pressure, he caved and ended up joining the Scofflaws in the late 80s. From there, he continued to play in other groups like the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble, and he became Moon Records' go-to producer for a while. He worked on several great records, including the Pie Tasters' Ululu and Ska Vuvi and the Epitones' Ripe. Victor continued to grow and evolve as a producer, engineer, and a live analog dub performer. Now currently a resident of Brazil, he continues to play music and work behind the board and look for creative ways to innovate. Aaron, do you listen to much jazz? Um, I don't actively seek out jazz. You know, I mean, sometimes it's background music. Yeah. How about yourself? No, jazz has never been anything that I've been interested in. However, I really like Victor Rice's approach to blending jazz with ska. Sure. Something about taking jazz musicianship and applying it to ska, it makes it so much more palatable. Well, I mean, you know, ska, a major component of ska is jazz already. So it's in the DNA of the music, which, by the way, I love ska and I love traditional ska and I love jazzy ska. Yeah. Sidebar. Yeah. I've been listening to a lot of dub lately. Oh, yeah? So I was, I was really excited to talk to Victor about dub music. Mm-hmm. I liked hearing about their approach to it and using a using old school technology to accomplish it. I love talking to musicians that are sort of committed to the analog approach to music. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to, but you choose it, and then it enhances your art, in my opinion. Definitely. So you have won two Latin Grammys, or is it more than that? Two. 
one in 2015 two. and one in 2016. And this was for um, engineering or mixing? Yeah, mixing. Um, it's not like I won the Grammy. It's because you know, <laughs> uh, uh, the artists won the Grammy and, and the categories weren't because there is a category for uh, best engineering. Mm. And uh, that's not that's not what, what happened in this case. It, what happened is that I mixed two records that won Grammys. Uh, but so you're part of the team. Yeah. You still get a Grammy, right? Yeah, I'm looking at the trophies right now. Sick. Clients love them. <laughs> scares them. You ever drink out of it? <laughs> <laughs> They're not big enough. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the the artists, these are uh, Brazilian artists? Yes. The first one was uh, Tulipa Ruiz, which was, mm -hmm. uh, she had a... Um, a uh, solo record called Danse, and it was recorded at Red Bull Station in Sao Paulo, which was, or I think was, a beautiful place, and with the same engineer as the other one. Um, so it was recorded at Red Bull Station, mixed here, and mastered by a guy named Philippe Tischauer in Miami. Mm. And, uh, and both of those Grammys went the same route. Both, both of those records were recorded the same place, mixed at the same place, mastered at the same place. Two different producers, but um, both excellent producers. And, and, and actually, uh, um, for me, there was less to do than normal. I, I usually get projects where it's like, oh, see what you can do with the drums or see what you can do about that, you know, instrument or whatever yeah see if you can fix the, the problem we had with it either musically or technically right so um so i get a lot of projects that are not big budget and there's a lot of work to do and these two records came to me and it was like there was almost nothing to do it was really just get all the ducks in a row and you know not get in the way in a sense you know there wasn't any of me putting my own sound into it or uh, they were beautifully written performed arranged recorded you know by the time they got to me there was there was nothing critical that i did you know what i mean it was it was an easier it was mm -hmm. way it, it's like the big jobs are easy mm. it's the little indie stuff that can get you going for like two days on the same mix like what the hell yeah do you find that it's just easier to have a good album when everything just gets played right in the first place oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I, I had this. I had this sort of um, mantra of sorts that uh, it goes: the master is not important as the mix. The mix is not as important as the recording. The recording is not as important as the performance, and the performance is not as important as the song. Mm. And as long as the song is good, everything else it gets easier, or it doesn't have to get easier. You know what I mean? I mean, there are some amazing records that don't sound good you know but the sure, songs yeah. are beautiful you know what's the worst sounding record that you think is an amazing record <laughs> that's an awesome question <laughs> oh my god um i mean i know mine you know i uh i grew up listening to david bowie and uh heroes will always be like one of my favorite favorite records of all time and just because of the songs and because of who i was when i heard it you know 16 yeah. 17 years old and and the memories that it reminds me of where i was and and all of that you know and mm -hmm. 
I listened to it recently after maybe 30 years of not actually paying attention anymore and listened to it. And I was like, geez, I don't like that mix at all. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, the voice could be louder, you know, it's like, what the hell is he saying? And, and geez, I don't, you know, I'm not really feeling this mix at all, you know? And, and it's funny. I, I kind of feel that way about Led Zeppelin because mm -hmm. those mixes are crazy. They are really crazy. Um, but I don't think they would have had the impact if they were mixed any other way. Who knows? Who knows? Of course, the brilliant songwriting performance. So the recording could have probably been done one way or another. But I just think it was so uh, when I listened back to it critically in a, in a studio setting, you know, and I was like, Jesus, so weird. I can't even say I can't even say it's wrong or bad. It was just like not at all how I remembered it. Yeah. Your, your memories can definitely color the way that it sounds. I actually just listened to the title track Heroes, um, and I think it was a remastered version on Sunday, like two days ago. <laughs> and I couldn't believe how bad it sounded. Like, it's, I mean, like, you know, Bowie's vocal performance on it's great, but everything just sounds so weird. And like, there's not a lot of punch to anything. There's a lot of elements that are happening that I'm like, can't really tell what's make out what's happening. It was really something. Yeah. Yeah. Brian Eno, you know, um, I, I, I really like a lot of things that he did. Oh, for sure. Creatively as a musician. He's, he's one of those musician engineers like myself. I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, trained in music, not engineering, but you know, there've been a lot of successes with, that kind of thing. I remember one guy who mentored me into uh, using a computer. He said, it's much easier to teach a musician how to be an engineer than the other way around. You, you can't teach music to somebody who isn't, you know, already got the talent, you know? It's a lot easier when it's just the, the number side of it. Yeah, the technical side you can learn, but the, the musical aspect and stuff. And being a musician during a recording session is great because when they say, let's go back to the bridge, I know what they mean whereas an engineer would be like oh is that one minute and 30 or is that you know what what number is that you know what in time <laughs> where i'm like oh that's what you what are you talking about the d minor yeah d minor cool yeah an engineer would be lost with that kind of reference you know so as somebody who's played music and produced and engineered for a long time uh did you ever expect to be uh, on the receiving end of a grammy uh, in any capacity I certainly wasn't gunning for one. It wasn't, it <laughs> certainly, it definitely wasn't on my radar. I didn't think I'd ever be, um, geez, I think if I, I would have had to have stayed in New York, I thought, you know, if I wanted to work with like big names or something, you know, but um, that's a whole other subject why I left. But I, you know, getting here, I was more like, well, now, you know, I got low overhead. I can do stuff I like, you know, and, and, not necessarily what's on the radio. So yeah, it came as a big surprise. <laughs> so yeah, so let, let's go back to New York. So you played, um, you you were in the Scofflaws. You, you joined at the beginning of the band being the Scofflaws? I joined in, I joined in 88. I was 21. And they were still the New Bohemians. Oh, okay. And they had a single out on a moon compilation. That's where they were 
historically as far as records go and they had gigs every like once or twice a month and it was an old buddy of mine from Huntington where I grew up who always wanted me to join the band but I was like I'm going to school now you know I just moved to New York why would I want to come back to Huntington you know and uh so I was kind of putting it off and finally I I Oh, I totally remember what it was. Totally remember what. I was at a music store buying strings in Huntington. And I get up to the line of the cashier, and she is hot. Totally beautiful. Totally hot. I'm like, wow. And I, you know, keep it cool. Don't, you know, I'm not an idiot, so I don't think anything's going to happen or anything. So I'm just paying for my strings. And she goes, you're Victor Rice. And I was like, oh, shit. Now, now I got something. You know, <laughs> this is great. I'm like, yeah, that's me every day, you know? Ah, because my boyfriend, Richie Brooks, <laughs> he really wants you to join the band. And I was like, wow. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I told Richie I'd like to, but, you know, it's, it's just that I'm in New York all the time and I'm, you know, moving away from the, the band thing and playing orchestras and shit. She goes, oh, that's too bad because uh, Louis Lamangino is playing guitar. And this guy was a prodigy. And I remember growing up in high school and looking up to this guy like, oh, my God. Know, this guy could play anything. So I call him up. I'm like, is it true you're playing with Richie Brooks? What's up with that? Because Richie was famous for just having people come in. It was more of a garage thing and very social and unserious and playful. And, you know, uh, uh, in fact, he is a great bass player, Sammy Brooks, right? And mm -hmm. like, he yeah. decided he wanted to play tenor sax. That's why he was after me to play the bass. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe, you know. He wasn't really taking the saxophone so seriously. He just wanted to be in the front of the stage. He was tired of being in the back with the drums. That's why he switched instruments, <laughs> so he could be in the front line. And, and he's, he's the social person. I mean, he belongs there, so no problem with that. So I'm like, Louis, what are you doing in this band, this prodigy, right? I'm like, how, what, what are you doing with these guys? He goes, you know what? Their crowds are bigger than anything else I do. And... They're all having fun and, and, and it's fucking, it's, it's like a night off. It was like, huh? So it became my night off to go there every Tuesday night, my night off from conservatory and stressing to just play some reggae and ska with these guys. So new Bohemians started out doing kind of a lot of different styles, but then they sort of, then it became more about being ska and reggae. So they were already, already just doing ska reggae when you joined. Yes. Um, before the New Bohemians, Richie called his outfit the Live Sax Show. <laughs> and, and they had the best flyers in town. I mean, this is back in the day, right, where flyers advertised gigs, you know, mm -hmm. like little lampposts and, you know, like and paper, on, you know, someone's out there stapling shit on the streets, you know. And um, that was Richie. <laughs> So I always knew what he was up to because of the flyers. And I knew that, oh, the live sax show, that sounds like fun. I had a picture of three saxophones. He's playing the tiny soprano. And um, from there, they went to the New Bohemians. And I think the key figure in, in making it a ska band rather than this R&B sort of all-encompassing show um, was Mike Drance, who would go on to sing with Blue Beats. Uh, he was a Barry sax player. And he was the serious guy in the band, the grouch that was like, no, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't, that's not, and, and it wasn't like he was a school musician. 
but his ears were impeccable for the style. I mean, a great singer, um, totally knew the styles, totally knew the records, knew all the songs. So really it was, it was Mike Drantz that made the New Bohemians a ska band. And that's why I got in there because at the time I was studying Bartok in school and really getting into it and studying Eastern European folk music, which was what his source was for his, you know, modernist compositions and stuff. He was using very basic folk material from the area. And when I listened to the Scatolites for the first time, Don Drummond record, like, man, that backbeat is the same thing as that they're doing, you know, in Eastern Europe, in Central Europe. It's, it's that, dun, dun, dun. like, how funny is that, that, you know, these guys are doing it halfway across the world, you know, from completely different pretense. And, and how funny that, that this upbeat really is sort of a world beat, you know, and it's jazz oriented and it's instrumental and it's reggae. So what's not to like if you're a bass player and you, you already like reggae and you're learning jazz and, you know, it all just seemed like a great night off every Tuesday night. <laughs> Did you, so you came in, uh, playing upright bass right off the bat? No, I brought that in later. Um, Cause I, like I said, I didn't want to take it seriously and I wasn't going to be, you know, bringing out my string bass to Huntington on the train or in a car. So I would go, with, I wouldn't even bring my bass. Richie had a bass. So I would just show up and um, hang out, drink beer and uh, play bass. It was fun. I mean, even if in those first gigs, I would go by train and Richie would bring a bass and an amp and I would just oh, show up. Great. Yeah, I was, I was pampered, pampered, but he really wanted me in because he knew he was like, you don't know, but I know you're going to love this shit. And I was like, I don't know. He's like, I know you don't know, but I know, <laughs> I know you. And I know he was totally right. He's brilliant. Was it your idea to do the upright or uh, was it something that Richie was thinking about? Nah, probably Mike Drantz bullied me into it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously the, you were trying to get, you know, trying to access that um, more traditional ska element with the upright, right? That was at the thought process. Yeah. Uh, we, we began opening for the Scatolites, which really knocked me out and I got to watch. And yeah, that even got me further into it, further down the rabbit hole. And I started bringing the string bass. Scofflaws, um especially that first record. That's one of my favorites from the nineties era. Um, I like that it has a lot of like traditional touch points, but it's also modern. It's also fun and lighthearted. And it's like, there's, it's like instrumental stuff and vocal stuff. So it's got like a nice blend. I could see how, you know, if you were in New York in, in that time period, how it would be, um, a lot of people would come out and, and just want to go to the show. Yeah. I, I mean, by the time that record came out, we had already um, had a good crowd, especially in Long Island. We had a lot of gigs and we were socking the money away and we paid for that record, you know, mm -hmm. but we were smart about it too, because um, we did as much rehearsing as possible outside of the studio. I mean, the tunes already worked out on stage. But then we, you know, rehearsed without the horns, just a rhythm section so we could get used to the form without having any cues because that's how we would record, right? 
And then we'd rehearse just the horns because that's how they were going to record, just the horns on top of, you know. So they had to have their thing to get. Can you tell people what Rich, what Rich he was like as a front man? Great band member, great front man. You know, not the, not the business, you know, shark that, you know, <laughs> could be useful, but uh, <laughs> that's, not, that's not Sammy, you know. It's not, that's not his way. He's, he's easygoing. He's very zen. So, uh, um, you know, he, he worked a lot on the show. Like, he'd have tunes. He would have tunes, but he would also bring in ideas for like, I, this is what I want to do. You know, like that whole watch the hand or, you know, these, these stage, these theatrics. He, he brought those, you know. And that was a lot of fun. Always fun. I mean, honestly, it was, uh, it was pisser being in that band. <laughs> I think the only reason I didn't stay was because I saw that it was already working for Sammy. He had everything he ever wanted. And me, I was still, yeah, he was 10 years older than me. So here I am, like, maybe 27 when I quit and uh, 28 around there. And it's, that means he was 38. You know? Yeah. And by then, he was like, this is, you know, this isn't going to... He, he didn't really want more than being able to play on Long Island. And, and in fact, that's what he does to this day. He's, you know, he's very content to be actually playing in small dives with people right there, like, you know, sweating on him. And, and uh, he, that's, he loves, he lives for that shit. I've talked to several um, like ska punk bands from Long Island you know, yeah, you know, that were obviously like the younger generation from Scofflaws. And they all idolized the Scofflaws. And it was always like, yeah, we put this band together and like, you know, we we just did everything we could to open up for Scofflaws. <laughs> <laughs> like uh local legends during the during the mid nineties. Yeah. Certainly uh, uh Long Island has its own sort of isolated scene. And uh, bands that do well there, in a sense, don't have to really go to the city if they don't want to. But the more they go to the city, the more cred they have on Long Island. So, you know, playing, we're, we're playing CBGBs or playing clubs like that. And, and so that meant something to, you know, the folks back home. It sounds like, like so far away, right? It's like 40-minute train ride <laughs> to New York. And I'm making it sound like, yeah, down on the farm, they're real happy to hear what we were doing up in the Bay Eddie. <laughs> No, so I. Uh, but but to your point, uh, back to your point. First CD was, you know, big deal for us and very easy to do. Very well rehearsed. We were in there. We we recorded everything in two days and we mixed everything in three days, and uh, we were totally prepared. Uh, excellent engineer Bob Stander, and beautiful studio. We spent the money in a nice place and we stayed there as little time as possible. Mm -hmm. How long did you spend on the recording? Oh yeah, five days. So quick. Like maybe six, maybe six in a really nice studio with a really good engineer and a very rehearsed band. So it was like in and out. And that was also mixing, mixing while you were there and all that. Yeah, two three days recording, two days mixing, something like that. Or three days mixing, maybe. That's fast. You know, for that whole that whole record was done within seven days easily. And uh and when Bucket you know, heard that, heard about that, and he enjoyed the sound of the record. And he thought, God, you know, you made this record for five grand. That's amazing. 
And, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons he wanted me to start producing for Moon Records because I could keep the budget down. Oh, yeah, because you produced the Scofflaws record as well, right? I, I produced that record. It's, it's credited as produced by the Scofflaws because we were trying to decide how to credit the production. Because mm-hmm. people were like, oh, well, you did everything. You, you found the producer, you found the engineer, you found the studio, you, you chose the tape, you, you, you rehearsed. I was there for all rehearsals, just rhythm section or just horns. You know, I, was, I produced the band effectively and you know, coordinated things. Um, but someone else was like, yeah, but we all paid for it. I'm like, yeah, that makes us all executive. So I, and I didn't want to get into it. So I just said, yeah, produced by the Scott Flaws. That's great. That's great. I, I stood my ground more for Scott and Hi-Fi mm-hmm. because uh, I saw that having a credit as a producer was so important. You know, I mean, that was our currency in the, in the 80s and the 90s. That was that was what people saw. People bought physical product and they would see your name on it. I even got to the point where I uh, I was insisting that produced by Victor Rice was on the outside of of the record or CD so that somebody could see it without having to buy it. Yeah. And and because of that, it started becoming something of a you know very low key trademark. But I was I just wanted that little act because I wasn't charging a lot to make i never charge points on a record for those who don't know what points are it means get a percentage of all profits in perpetuity and that was back in the day when music made money yeah so most producers i mean to this day most producers get a you know get a a point which is a percentage point so you know i want you know three points on a record it means i got three percent of all profits on the record and i never did that what I did do was uh, rent equipment <laughs> to record the band. I would rent, and that would later go on the dime, the band's dime, which I didn't really, you know, figure out. I didn't maybe I just didn't want to do the math. I didn't like where's the money coming from, mm-hmm. right? But um, I was renting some sweet vintage microphones, or you know, choosing to record in a vintage place. Got really more involved in the production end because of Bucket, because of Moon, because he. He really gave me, uh, you know, gave me a gig. He gave me a career. So, like some of the Moon records um, that you produced, um, obviously the the first two Scofflaws, which we discussed. You did Pie Tasters, Ululu, uh, Slackers, first record, Better Late Than Never, Scavuvin Epitones album, Ripe. Any other ones from that from that period that you did for Moon Records? Um, I really liked the adjusters record. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, before the revolution, that was a really, and it was the opposite of recording Scavuvi because Scavuvi was more like the Scofflaws. They had just come back from tour. All the songs were stupidly rehearsed, really great musicians in that band. Everyone from Scavuvi is still playing in some field or another, you know, and, and they're all busy and they're all you know, they've all branched out. They all have made careers for themselves, you know, uh, really, really wicked bunch of little kids. I thought they were kids. They were like 10 years younger. <laughs> you know? But when I heard, but when I heard Rob Jost played a bass, I was like, fuck, who, who told him? Like, I, I felt like betrayed by my teachers or something, you know, I was like, why is he so good? You know, <laughs> I felt the same way when the first time I heard Vic Ruggiero play the bass. I was like, fuck, 
he's like, you know, 19 or 18. And, you know, he plays like an old Motown guy. So you said the adjusters was like the opposite of that. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I mean, Scavuvio, in and out, amazing studio, all done in a week. Uh, very much like the first Scoflo's record. Very much. Matt Ellard was the engineer. It was done in Fort Apache in, in Boston. Excellent studio. Just top of the top. Of the, top. Um, the adjusters, the studio was quite good, but they showed up unrehearsed. They showed up like the Beatles. Like, I, I got this idea for a song. You know, let's spitball this. And I was like, what? The, the clock is running in the studio, and you guys I like, are like, I think I got what? And, and, and but they put it together they really did and we worked overtime i saw it was worth it and and i love i mean Duraka as a person is like what's not to love he's just a beautiful beautiful cat and uh and as a musician as a talent holy shit so you know i was on board totally on board and we got through it you know at one point the tape snapped the machine malfunctioned it was hours before I had to get on the plane, go back to New York. And I was like, I'll fix it in New York. I mixed it in Brooklyn at the Coyote Studio, which is where a lot of 90s ska records were made. And uh, so, yeah, there were little traumas and stuff. And that was a hard record to make. And I love the way it sounds. And Scavuvi was an easy record to make. And I love the way it sounds. We'll be right back after this. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So I want to talk about a New York jazz ska ensemble mm. or a New York ska jazz ensemble. Yeah. Were you the founder of that project? I wasn't a founding member, I guess, because I was the first bass player they asked. Uh, okay. But it wasn't your concept. No, no. It was Freddie and Rick, uh, Rick Faulkner, um, nicknamed Chunk, trombonist from the ska, from the toasters. Yeah. At the time, Freddie, Fred Ryder, was a sax player in the Toasters. And Carrie Brown had left the Scatolites and was playing keys with the Scofflaws. 
and the scofflaws were opening for the toasters on tour and we all like the 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 jazz heads just started hanging out you know and jonathan jonathan mccain on the drums right mm-hmm. so you're talking about all the original members were like guys who were hanging out on tour and i remember it was at carrie brown's wedding at his reception i'm hanging out and it was funny because freddie and rick were like can we talk to you for a minute yeah, what, what's up? They were like, it was weird, you know. I was like, come over here by the pool. I want to talk. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll go over there, and then and they, you know, and then it was Freddie and Rick talking about, you know, we got this idea for a band. We're going to call it the Scott Jazz Ensemble, and we want you on bass. We want Carrie on the keys, and uh, we didn't decide on drummer. They didn't decide on the drummer for a little bit. I really wanted Tony Mason in there because he's just so good. He's such. He's such a monster in both categories, ska and jazz. The guy's a monster. And, um, and he's a drummer on the first Scofflaws record. He's my buddy from Manhattan School of Music. Tony Mason. Badass motherfucker. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, I was down, totally down. In fact, you know, if they can make it work, it was because they're, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't going to be a, we were like, ah, oh. they, they, they said they wanted to make work around the toaster schedule. Very much like the way these days, Dave Hilliard, the Rocksteady 7, they work around the slacker schedule. Yeah. So when the slackers aren't out there, Dave goes out with the Rocksteady 7. And it was very much like when the toasters weren't out on the road, you know, Freddie and Rick had a chance to do something. And that's what we did. And it was a success from the jump. It was my first time in Europe. Um, the very first tour we did, um, uh, the guitarist wasn't available and Vic Ruggiero did it on guitar. Oh, really? He was great. Yeah. He was, so he was, Vic Ruggiero played on the first Scott Jazz Ensemble tour in Europe. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just a weird trivia. Yeah. That's, I didn't know that. Because Devon James was a guitarist and he's a good, he was a guitarist for the Scatolites. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cat. Oh my God, just just so solid character and musician. But he wasn't available for the tour. Uh, New York during the 90s has always been more connected to the jazzier side of ska, you know, compared to, um, for the most part, the other parts of the country, other scenes in the country. But I really liked this project because it was so, it was more, you know, it was kind of more overt. It was like kind of wearing it wearing that more on the sleeve and, and kind of leaning into it more was the project well received overall, or did it feel like it was a select part of the scene that was interested in it? Ah, good question. I, um, uh, I didn't pay attention. Like those first gigs we were always playing with the toasters or with, you know, some other band. So there was a crowd no matter what, but it, and, and that was what it was like in the first couple of tours with the Scott Jazz. And after that, it just became its own entity, like, you know, with its own fans and its own, you know, jeez, uh, they do really, I think they're on tour right now as we speak. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, they're in Europe probably as we speak. They don't stop. Freddie doesn't stop. So the, the members of the Scottalites are, you know, a lot of, they moved basically relocated, relocated to New York in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And, you, you were opening for them. You got to know them. Did you get to work with them at all? I did. Um, 
I got to know them opening up and, and uh, oh, once Mike Drance left the Scofflaws, I was the next closest thing to a manager that the band had. So I would be the one to collect the money at the end of the gig. You know, something Richie wasn't really into or uh, often Richie would collect on the gigs that he he got. But uh, Mike had done a lot of the booking in New York. Mike Drance was not only the reason the Scalflows were a ska band, but he's also the reason they played in New York and knew he knew who the Scatolites were. And he was the one hanging out with these guys and talking up the band and, and getting us gigs at like SOB in New York or Wetlands and, and uh, or just getting getting us to open for the Scatolites at like colleges, like Stony Brook or something like that. You know, a lot of Long Island stuff. It was a wonderful time. I had no idea. Uh, uh, they those I was I had no idea I was living such like precious times at the time. You know, really amazing. When you were settling up at the end of the night, did anybody ever try to stiff you? One time, <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> it was in New London, Connecticut. And the show was a matinee and the promoter was just a kid. And if I was just a kid means if I was 30, he was 20, something like that. He's like, oh, we don't have the money. We don't have the money. And then it's like, oh, that's too bad. Um, I'll, I'll talk to the band. Let's see what we can do about it. And um, I found the microphone case for the club with all the microphones in them, in, in the case. And I put it up and I put it into the van. And I think somebody saw me do it. And I was telling these guys, look, this is ours because they don't have the, they don't have the money. So I'm holding this for ransom. And uh, they found the money. <laughs> I gave them the microphones. <laughs> uh, this is good advice for fans out there. Amazing advice. I love that. Yeah, I, it was the only time it ever happened. And it was like, just, it, was, it wasn't like somebody trying to stiff. You know, it wasn't like first few times Tosas came to Brazil and the promoter was literally leaving the building through the bathroom window, you know, with the money and, uh, you know, like stupid stuff. This wasn't the case. This is some kid who never had, did a show before. It was like, oh, fuck, we don't have money. I kind of feel bad now thinking about it. But at the time, I was vexed. I was like, that fucking kid, you know, where are those microphones? Give me that shit. You know, I was. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I heard that you um, you were kind of hanging around when they recorded Ball of Fire and that you uh, you punched in a few bass, not bass parts to help out or something. Is that true? That is true. I played on about half the tracks on Ball of Fire. Uh -huh. um, it's so funny that you have to remind me that because it was one of those things like, we will never talk about this. Don't even remember this. This never happened, you know? <laughs> and I literally just like, it's not very well in my memory because I was like, I can't remember this. I can't remember I did this. No. Like, like I kind of deleted it, <laughs> you know? But So it takes somebody to go, didn't you play a ball of fire? I'm like, fuck, I did. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and, and what happened is that they, they asked me to come down in Sony studio, a beautiful place. And, um, had me hang out and they were like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Just chill. Just chill. And it was fun because at that point I was already 
musically very um, uh, uh, connected with Lester Sterling. This was before he had had a series of strokes and things that left him a different person. But back then, you know, he liked to play the piano and I would pick up Brevet's bass and we just play standards or something. We never talked, but he knew I knew the twos and, and we would just play together. And he, and, and he would invite me to secret recording sessions and shit. It's really funny. Oh. Yeah, he, he was like, you know, I was talking to Gaz May. Oh, yeah, I'm here to record the Scalites at such such studio tomorrow morning. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Can I go? No, no, VIP. It's, a, it's, it's all locked down. Like, all right. And then Lester would come by and, with the address scribbled on a napkin. <laughs> you know, it, it, <laughs> what a prince. What a guy. I knew those guys. So, so I also knew Shay, who was their manager at the time. And Shay said, come on down. You know, we're thinking of having you uh, bring your bass. Bring your bass. We want to see if it sounds better than one that Brevet's using. So that was the premise to get me in there, mm. to offer a bass for him to play. He didn't like it. He decided to use his bass that he used on the road. But I was in the session. I was already there. I had done a thing. I was a known entity. And after he left, well, after the first session, they were like, oh, look, we're going to record the whole record with him, and then we're going to call you afterwards to pick up the bass. Like, all right, that's cool. I had already figured out what was going on. I go there. Brevet's gone. The band is gone. It's just Nathan Breedlove, uh, uh, the trumpet player who's representing the Scatolites, and the producer, English guy whose name I can't remember, Trevor something. And, you know, the engineer, we tried doing it with my bass, but it just didn't have the thing. And it's funny because his bass is really tough to play. It's, you know, the scale is bigger. He was a big dude, you know, he was tall. He was tall and, and, uh, and big hands and stuff. And I think the strings were like gut strings instead of steel, you know, it was a very different instrument. So I wound up having to play on his instrument to make it more, you know, easy for the engineer and easier for everyone else for consistency stake, right? Sort of hide behind his instrument. And, uh, and it worked. And I did like half that record, at least. Was there a problem with his playing? Was it, what was going on? Why, why did they want you to play on some of it? Well, there were two things. One was that his left hand had kind of gone off for about five years already or something like that. Um, he, and, and when I say left hand, that means intonation. So his intonation, he wasn't hitting the notes exactly where they ought to be. Meanwhile, his right hand, killer. He never lost the beat. He never lost the rhythm. He never lost the attack. He never lost that Cuban thing. And, uh, uh, but his left hand, he was, he was losing his, his pitch. The other thing is that he would reharmonize sometimes and insist that, no, the harmony goes like this. It doesn't go to D minor, it goes to F, you know? And, and there'd be arguments that I heard later about from Laurel Aiken that they would just, you know, wind up letting him do whatever he did and replacing it later. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> which, I, which I had done on a, a Scott Titans record, Laurel Aiken meets the Scatolites. Uh, all I had to do was replace uh four bars at the end of each bridge which he insisted was a series of chords that the whole band didn't agree and all i had to do was replace the bass and it worked 
So, I, I mean, so Brevet had these two things going on. You know, one was that he was insisting on the harmony being different and he was not playing in tune. So I was in there to do that and I had to do my best. The hardest part for me was, was the right hand, trying to get that sense of, of, of attack that he, that he got, you know. Just his time, his time was always just priceless to the end, you know? Yeah. Must have been a little intimidating. Yeah. It was, but it's not the most intimidating thing I've ever done. I mean, let me think. It's the most intimidating thing I've ever done. <laughs> Auditioning for Juilliard was the most intimidating thing I've ever done. What did you do for your audition? I don't remember, but there were a couple of like, <laughs> it was a sonata. The idea would be a sonata. Um and three orchestral excerpts and two etudes. But you had to go in there with like two sonatas, five etudes and 10 orchestral excerpts and they would choose what they wanted to hear, you know? So you had to have a whole repertoire and I got in, you know? David Walter let me in. Um, David Walter, an amazing you know, string bassist and professor taught at Juilliard and has a long history of it. His daughter is, uh, uh, what's her name? What's her first name? The last name is Walter, the actress in uh, Recent Development and in Archer. What's her name? She recently passed away. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the mother in Arrested Development. Yeah, and the mother in Archer. What's her name? Something Walter. Something Walter. Jeez. Anyway, his daughter. I didn't even know who she was at the time. So yes, the most intimidating thing I've ever done was to audition at Juilliard, but I got in. Well, congratulations. Yeah, didn't go. I should have gone, man. I went to Manhattan School of Music. They had jazz. They had contemporary. Um, they had my old teacher. Yeah, I didn't go. It was fucked up. Well, how do you think things would have turned out differently had you gone? Um, I think the only difference is that I could have said I'd gone to Juilliard. Like, <laughs> Holy shit, let me give you a raise. You know, like, like yeah. that, I didn't know just how much clout that name had. <laughs> I want to talk about Version City now. So Version City, can you tell people what Version City is or was? Version City was the name of the rehearsal space turned studio on East Third Street in Manhattan uh, in a basement rented by Jeff Baker of Stubborn Records. So Jeff was renting a basement in a building uh, to rehearse his band. And also, you know, uh, he decided at one point, it's very funny, I remember this. I remember this very well, but he had been given a certain budget from a label to make a record and he had spent three or four days in a studio that he didn't like the situation. The engineer wasn't very experienced and he was watching the money go away. And he said, you know what, with the money left, I can buy a tape machine. I can buy a mixing desk. I can buy some microphones and I can do a better job than this guy. And he did. And from that point on, there was like the bare bones recording situation in the space. It was just known as the space. Was this a stubborn records? Uh, stubborn. I mean, sorry, stubborn all-stars record that he got that money from. I believe it was Skinner box, but I can't, oh, was it, it might've been stubborn all-stars. I can't remember, but uh, he didn't like the way it was going. And um, very, 
you know, brilliant move was to say, ah, oh, there's just enough money left in the budget to do this myself. And, and he split from the studio. It was a bad situation in the studio. They, they didn't have their shit together. So you kind of hung out. I know a lot there, there was a group of people hung out, but you kind of hung out there quite a bit, right? Yeah. At one point I was living not far. I was living on ninth street. And, um, so I was there a lot if I didn't have anything to do, which was surprise, which, which was often for a bass player. You know, I, I think most bass players have some second life or, you know, with something else that interests them because it's just not enough, you know, the bass just isn't enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you, you can't sit there um, at, a, at a coffee shop with your acoustic guitar uh, singing your your heartfelt songs to an audience if you're a bass player. Um, actually, I saw some guy with a washed up bass on a platform subway that just knocked me out. Crooner, crooner, unbelievable. But what I'm saying is like, there's, you know, there's not that much you need to know to get the job done as a bass player. It's kind of true. I mean, it's not like, you know, the joke where the kid goes, dad, I'm taking bass lessons. Oh, that's cool, son. Cool. What'd you learn today? I learned the first three notes on the E string, E, F, and G. Oh, whatever. That's cool. Week goes by. (laughs) What'd you learn this week, son? I learned the three notes on the next string, you know, A, B flat, B, C, you know, all that's on the A string. Oh, whatever. Cool. Whatever. Third week goes by. Yay. How's, you know, how, how's, how the lessons going? What's what's going on, son? He's like, ah, oh, dad, I had to quit. I have too many rehearsals and gigs. I'm just too busy, man. <laughs> so many, I'm in so many bands. <laughs> Did you kind of produce or engineer a lot of the stuff coming out of there? What was your relationship to the recordings, the Virgin City recordings, I guess? Um, I had a Big influence in one way, indirectly. But I did spend a lot of time there. I had free time, and it was nearby. And from up until that point, I had been producing records with an engineer. But the idea down in the space was you were the engineer, and you had to just figure it out yourself. And Agent J lived close close to the space as well. So I would normally call him, say I'm going to the space, or he would call me and say I'm going to the space. Because the two of us there could figure shit out where one guy is scratching his head for an hour going, why can't I hear the left side? And another person looks in two seconds and goes, Oh, the wire's out. You know, it's like, Oh shit. You know, like one person will see the obvious when the other one doesn't. And and it's, it's great to have two heads looking at the same thing, you know? So me and Jay learned a lot together. We cut our teeth and we just made, you know, we made all our mistakes together and, and, and uh, we did a lot. You know, and I learned a lot. I, I actually had to control, you know, I had to be the engineer for the first time. I wasn't trained in it, but I had seen it enough and I'd done, you know, I worked on things enough that to know what was involved. And uh, at the scale that Virgin City was, which was eight tracks, it was it was enough that I could wrap my head around, you know, it wasn't such a big, complex system. So uh, it was e- easy for us to wrap our heads around it and. And the best part was that they, the clock wasn't running anymore. This is the first time I'm in a studio where I'm not paying to be there. Just hang out. No one's using it. I go in there, you know, I sweep up and clean up a little bit and light some incense and just figure some shit out. And, uh, 
And I brought Eddie Ocampo down there to play drums on a few things. And I guess my drum recordings, our drum recordings, became kind of standard. Like uh, there's one track called Damage that he played the drums on that was used, I think, like six times um, on various records because people would just siphon off the drums rather than call Eddie back to do something. They're like, ah, I love the way he played on such and such a tune. Let's just record those tracks of the drums, you know, because there were two tracks of drums at the time. There was the, the <laughs> inside the kick drum and outside the kick drum. So basically there was, a, there was a microphone in the kick and another one near the snare that was getting the hi-hat and everything else. Uh, so it was two tracks. You, you could record it to a Sony Datman recorder and then play it back to a fresh piece of tape and then start a new tune, build a new tune. And so all, all the songs would just be to that same arrangement of drums? Yeah, we had tricks. I mean, I'd used it like three times or four times. You know, one time I used it, I played the tape backwards, so it was all in reverse. <laughs> one time I recorded it um, at a slower speed. That was another thing. Oh, we were like. yeah. It was just because we could change the speed of the recording, the tape recorder. And, and we used that trick to make... To, to make fake horns. Like if I had Buford down there, have him play the trombone, then I needed a trumpet. I would slow the tape down like a, by a, like a perfect fourth or something, figure out what the note was, mm. tell him, all right, play these notes. And then when we sped it back up, it sounded like a trumpet. That's so sick. That's nice. We did the opposite too. I had a, uh, Anda Silaji came down there. She's a trumpet player. Jay's band, Orange Street. And we needed a trombone. So we had her play the trumpet to the tape going really fast, had her play some little and then slowed it back down. And it was a trombone. It was great. <laughs> you said it, uh, there was something, some particular way you were very influential. The drum tracks. Me and, oh, the me, drum tracks. Me and Eddie. I, I got some great recordings of him playing amazing drum tracks. And I think that was a big, like even stuff I wasn't um, producing or working on, I'd hear that my drums were used. You know, my drum recording from one of my songs or something would get used on another track, you know, to build a new new rhythm. Do you feel like the limitations of that studio helped like come up with some really creative ideas? I mean, you already said a couple, but... I mean, I feel like those limitations like really help you key in on being creative rather than futzing with stuff the entire time. Absolutely. You, you nailed it. You nailed it. For me, creativity is, um, or let's say limitations are, are like the mother of creativity. Mm. You know, then you have to, you know, and it's easier to create within limits. If you have everything, you know, if you have the whole universe in front of you, where do you start? Where do you end? But if you only have eight tracks, you're like, all right, let's, uh, let's do this thing. But it wasn't just eight tracks because we could bounce. We, you know, I would create a rhythm with eight tracks, you know, like the track one would be the kick, track two would be all the rest of the drums, track three would be the bass, four on guitar, keys on five, horns on six, vocals on seven, backing vocals on eight. We're done. No, actually, no, not, not vocals, maybe not horns. So there'd be a, like, you know, drums and guitars, 
the bass and keys and percussion. And that would be eight tracks. And then we would mix that to a DAT tape and then record the DAT tape to a fresh piece of tape. This is what the Beatles did. So it wasn't, we weren't, you know, sure. geniuses by far. We were just doing what we had to do. And, and so then you had six free tracks. You had two tracks, which was the submix of the rhythm. And then you could add horns and vocals. How far could you bounce though before you'd end up with a, you know, sonic degradation where you're starting to lose some of the fidelity? I mean, it was a tape machine, so you're losing fidelity from the from the jump, <laughs> right from the get. Yeah, uh, and I never bounced more than once. I okay. never bounced more than one rhythm track back to a new piece of tape, and uh, and even that was rare. I was kind of like, you know, if you can't say it in eight tracks, you know. Sure. You know, you're doing it wrong or something. You know, Brian Dixon would agree with that. By the way, he's the engineer from the Agrolites and the guitarist. The Agrolites. He's also a dub master. King Terror is his moniker. That's a great name. Mm-hmm. Brian Dixon. This guy knows what it's about, and uh, and he's one of those guys that's like, man, if you know, if you can't say it in eight tracks, you know, figure something out because something's wrong. Yeah. Was this during this time? Was when you got into doing dub? Yes, for two reasons. One was because no engineer wanted to try and make these crazy exploding sounds on their you know, precious equipment. So I could never get another engineer to just, you know, push it and try for these things. We, you know, and the engineers I was working with had no experience with dub, didn't ever listen to Lee Perry or King Tubby or nothing like that. So that, that was one thing. The other thing was that with the clock, not, you know, time not being money anymore, I could just experiment, you know, nobody had to be there. Once I figured, once I had everything wired up and I had a tune on a tape machine, I could just hang out all night, just playing around and experimenting. And, um, nobody was the wiser and it didn't put anybody out and it didn't cost me anything. It was just absolutely version city is where I learned the dub techniques, my dub techniques. And, um, and they haven't changed since. <laughs> yeah. What, could you uh, talk a little bit about some of your techniques? Sure. I love that. <laughs> love talking about that. <laughs> Um, well, it's based on the original because back in the late sixties, early seventies, there was only one way to make dub. Now there, there are a few stories about how dub came about. One is the, the economic advantage of paying a band to play one song instead of two, buying one song instead of two, and then putting a dub on the B side to complete, you know, a single. So there was the economic capitalistic you know, advantage. Another another one is that um, a tune was mixed and they forgot to put the lead vocal on it and the record, you know, as they went straight to the party and the party, they played it at the party and there was no vocal, so somebody started chatting on top of it. Um, there, there, there are a few opinions of how dub started, but there's no, you know, there's no confusion about how it was made. You know, the engineer was uh, uh, participating musically in, in the recording by like everything was recorded and the engineer could choose which tracks would play at any point with the faders and he could send whatever instrument he wanted to in a, a reverb or an echo and, and play that way. And it became uh, 
a musical performance of the engineer, all done in real time, manually. And I had always wanted to preserve that aspect because these days dub can be, you know, it's, it's, it's a word that gets used more than, you know, it's all encompassing. It's kind of like, you know, you say, you say the word ska and people are like, well, what, what exactly are you talking about? You know, and it's the same with dub, you know, you just say ska and people will know what, you know, there's, oh, there's so much, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I like ska. What does that mean? <laughs> Real big fish, Don Drummond. I mean, what does that mean to you? You know. In defense of ska, we'll return in a moment. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. So dub, rather than being a vibe, you're talking about dub being more of a technique. It's a technique, and it became a genre you know, in the last 20 years or so, I'd say, you know, but, or, or maybe since then it's been a genre, but the word comes from the technique. I don't, it doesn't make sense because dubbing is when you overdubs, you, you record something on top of something that's already there. So maybe that's what they're talking about. But dub, dub, um, this is the first time that the engineer becomes a, a musical artist, essentially a creative musical artist. Yes. For me, it's a liberation from like 80 years of, of or, or maybe 60 years, 40 years, I don't know how much of mechanical domination over musicians. Because once the film industry had sound, then the soundtracks were being made by real musicians who had to listen to a click track. All of a sudden, everything had to be done to 120, which is two beats per second. And, uh, and all the Warner Brothers orchestrations you know they sound like they change tempos all the time but they're all multiples or divisions of 120 beats per second and all of a sudden musicians had to behave like machines so the machines were dominating musicians ever since you know sound came to picture and then only in jamaica in the 60s do you know some some geniuses decide, you know what, I'm going to use this delay not to simulate reality, but I'm going to use it as a musical participant in the, in the 
and the result. So you create polyrhythms with the delay, or you could create tones with the reverb and using them for musical purposes, not for their intended spatial uh, duplication, realist, realism copying purposes, you know? And it was the first time that musicians turned, you know, made like, like dominated the, the, the machines. And it's in a way it's like, it's like humans winning over the machines. Uh, and it's not, <laughs> and you know, and it's not praised like this because it didn't happen in Leipzig, you know, but believe me, it's a hugely important thing, you know? Yeah. Maybe it didn't happen in Geneva or fucking Naples, but you know, no, it happened in Jamaica, you know, it happened in Kingston. So, you know, it doesn't mean it isn't as important. Sure. If dubbed hadn't happened, I have no idea what the, the, um, how DJ culture and electronic music, if it would have even happened or how it would have happened. Cause it stemmed from this. Oh yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. They're responsible for so much good things in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so you're approaching, you know, you're doing dubs and it's a musical instrument. Uh, you kind of have, it seems like you have unlimited options. So how, how do you approach, what are some ways to approach it? Like, like an instrument, I guess. Um, I guess uh, 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 the one thing that continues from the version city days, like back then I was limited to eight tracks and these days from a computer, there's no limit, but I still use eight tracks on the mixing desk. So I will still sum the drums, like track one will still be the bass drum, track two will still be a sum of all the other drums and percussion instruments, track three will still be the bass. So I'm still reducing it to what, to what my options were at Virgin City. And, and in fact, the delays, you know, I'll use, I only use like one delay and one echo these days. I used to use more, but, uh, you know, I'm using a more musically and not as spatially anymore, you know? So, uh, uh, my whole point of doing the dub shows with the equipment was to show people how dub used to be made. Yeah. So you, um, yeah, I think, I'm not sure if we totally explain that, but you were doing, or you, or you are currently doing uh, live dubbing. And, um, I know at some point you even put a camera down on the mixing board to show people that you were doing it, that it, that it wasn't just a pre-recorded thing that you were actually doing it live. Yeah, that was a, uh, um, that was something I wound up having to do in a way because people were interrupting me during the set, asking me to play something else. <laughs> <laughs> Not everywhere, you know, I mean, I mean, not in Italy, but 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 in Germany, you know, people were like, ah, could you play? Or in Switzerland, you know, they, they weren't getting it. But I mean, Italy, no problem. People knew what I was doing. <clears throat> France, people know what I'm doing. But um, I mean, this is like 20 years ago, you know, now. Sure. But, you know, but what happened is people come up to me asking me for requests or something. And I'd say, I can't really, you know, a, that isn't what this is. And I can't even tell you about it right now because I'm in the middle of something, but you know, and, and then I realized, you know, the ultimate line of defense would be to just put a projection behind me of the desk and my hands working. So that people knew that I was actually you know, participating in the music they were hearing. You know what I mean? 
I wasn't yeah. a DJ. It wasn't just a selector. I'm actually making the shit that they're you're hearing. And then I started, then I created a YouTube channel and that, that's basically the same thing. For me, it's really important to, uh, um, to die on that hill, you know, to say like, look, I do this in one take. This is improvised. This is how they did it. And what you do isn't dub, <laughs> you know, get like real gatekeepy shit. But, but I, like for me, it's not important that I don't judge other people what they're doing, especially with the ska, with the dub. But it's really important that I gatekeep myself. You know, I'm, I am my own gatekeeper. And, and uh, I know, you know, I live by my rules, you know. And so, so to, to, to make that point, I have the YouTube channel and I, and I project the, the, the mixing desk at shows. And your and your and your name is uh, Stickly Stickly Vickley. Is that am I pronouncing it right? Strictly Vickley. Strictly Vickley. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what Strictly Dickley was. This was like this Strictly Vickley is so old. I'd never even I've never even heard the phrase Strictly Dickley. Yeah, I've never heard I, that phrase. What What does that mean? Tell us what that is. Uh, people who just want the dick. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like some girl goes, Oh, that guy's really cute. And then her friend will be like, forget about it. He's strictly dickly. Yeah. So strictly Vickly is people who just want the Vic. I wanted to make a, a, <laughs> a, a, a triumph for it. Me, Victor Axelrod and Victor Ruggiero, the club of the Vicks, <laughs> only Vicks allowed strictly Vickly. But Vic didn't have time and Axelrod Tickley, he actually didn't, wasn't interested because he was already doing battle like with two names. People knew him as Victor Axelrod or they knew him as Tickla. And he was having a problem resolving these two separate audiences who didn't know that it was the same guy. And he's like, there's no way I'm going into a third moniker. That's, you know, my manager's already pissed at me. You know, <laughs> so that didn't happen. So we called a tune strictly Vickley because uh, we had a bunch of like we, we made like five rhythms together. Me and Axelrod with, with me playing bass and him playing drums. And we've recycled those many a time since, you know, recorded at Version City. Um, those rhythms, for some reason, always get picked by the Jamaicans when they want to sing something. They, they, they really gravitate towards that session at Version City. So, um, and, and since then I was like, all right, so I'm strictly Vickley in, in that case, I'm, it's strictly me. It's only me. It's like, fine, I can do this, you know, like kind of like that. So that became my, my dub name and the name of the dub system, the strictly Vickley dub system, which is, uh, you know, like four crates of equipment and, and me. And, and when I show up at whatever bar, they're like, they can't believe I'm, I show up, they think I'm the roadie because I'm setting everything up. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm the, they're like, where's everyone else? I'm like, no, it's just me. Strictly, you know, strictly Vickley, man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's awesome, dude. It is awesome to cross Europe in a car by yourself. Uh, the amount of support you get from people seeing that you're doing it alone. And they're like, all these goddamn wires and all this, like, why are you doing this? This is so impractical. I'm like, yeah, but people like to see the tape. And, uh, and the first time you do a live rewind and they hear, doo -doo 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 -doo, it's like, 
it's fascinating to watch their faces, man. That's like, that is so satisfying. The first time somebody hears the machine makes that sound. It's like, imagine hearing a meow all your life. You hear meow, 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 meow. You, you don't even think about it. It's in songs, meow, meow, meow. And then one day you see a cat and the cat goes meow. And you're like, holy <laughs> shit, that's the thing that makes the, the thing, you know? It's a cat. And, 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 and that's the expression on these faces, man, in, in Italy and in um, Czech Republic. Holy shit, do they love it there, man. Hungary, Sidaji, uh, uh, Mexico. Oh, my God. These guys were just bugging out, bugging the fuck out. Like, we never knew what machine, what device made that sound. It's on all the reggae hits, you know? Yeah. Come back, select that. It's like, like everyone's, it's, it's a sample on everyone's like $10 keyboard, you know? It's like, <laughs> but they never knew where it came from. So that's fun. That's, that's supremely fun. And, and there are places like in Italy, the, occupi the occupied spaces that, are, that's become, that have become cultural centers. Most cities have one. And I do workshops. And I'll do that in Switzerland as well. Workshops are very popular in Switzerland and Italy. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to be a traveling, you know, solo, retro, techno, throwback, futuristic, whatever. So are you, are you talking about some of the more like established squats in those places? Right. The Casas Ocupadas, uh, CSOA. Yeah. It's, it's when somebody makes a squat, you know, they invade a building. And the city's like, well, you, you know, they're, they're maintaining the building. They're, they're making, they're doing ref, reforms and they're, they're fixing stuff. And then they're like, all right, tell you what, if you, if you open up an English school or if you open up an Italian school for the immigrants and you open up a kitchen, we'll let you have it, you know, do some things for, you know, and then there's this like there in Italy, there is this sort of, uh, there is a dialogue between the, you know, the occupiers and, and the state. Yeah. Which is great. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then you end up with these, these like, little like almost like micro cities within the city where it's like a totally different vibe. Do you, do you end up sleeping there too when you? Yes. Yes, totally. I love it. I love it. I love staying at the squats and, uh, and, and I don't even think of them as squats really because sure I've stayed at squats too. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> yeah, you know, you take it or leave it. But um, these, these spots in Italy, like the one in Torino in Turin, one in Genova, um, mm -hmm. they're just so well run, you know, and everything's there. And I offer free bass lessons when I'm there. I give free, you know, I just, I stay on the, on the premises and there's, you know, there's food, there's beer and there's ganja and, you know, they're just awesome. They, they know what, you know, what counts. They're grateful for what I'm doing. And, you know, I just stay there when I have days off and, and yeah, you know, participate you know give lessons or or workshop or whatever whatever it is they think i can give give to the to the folks you know mm -hmm. man it's great it's almost it's almost better than performing it's almost i mean there's something about teaching that is like that can be you know more satisfying than performing sure so how, how long do you usually stay in these spaces ah, a week cool. you know like if i'm in italy i'll be in torino that'll be my home base and then I'll drive to Genoa and maybe, you know, I'll drive back 
you know, and Italians are like, wow, you're going to drive for two hours. That's so long. I'm like, dude, <laughs> don't even get started. <laughs> have you been to a uh, Cristania in Denmark? I have not. And I would love to go there. I have a friend now living in Copenhagen. So uh, I hope that one day I get a little more North than I've been. Germany's Germany's a tough nut to crack, and and I'm not sure what to do about it because I know that I could be playing more places, and I think the people that most appreciate my music, the most people who most dig it, mm. are in Germany, particularly East Germany, and um, yeah. But it's a, a Germany's tough nut to crack because they you know they don't pay very well, you know, but their hospitality is amazing, and it's hard to get gigs. Or at least it's been hard for me to get more gigs in Germany. I'd love to get in there more because uh, people just, you know, I, I it's probably because I study Bach or whatever. And, and but I mean, there's my music is like Germanic, mm -hmm. you know, and they get it. They get it. The guys in Czech get it. You know, there's a tune I did that's uh, uh, I totally lifted off a Hungarian a cappella peasant song. And they get it. They play it in Hungary. Gogo Bordello play it all the time. Like, uh, uh, it's weird. It's like just one of those things that, um, you know, like it's a ska beat, but they, you know, they absolutely get it. They get it that it's Hungarian. And I'm working on a great project now with Pannonia All-Stars based on Hungarian folk music. Should be out next year. Ooh, what, what's the name of that project? Working title, working title is with apologies to Bella Bartok because um, he would never sanction this project because he was a very <laughs> purist. He was a purist. He was trying to preserve Hungarian folk music. And the fact that I'm putting some old melodies on top of like drum song by Jackie Mitu or, or, you know, other reggae rhythms, he would never tolerate, you know. But in the but I'm inspired by the guy. The guy has inspired me to do so many things, and and he inspires the way I compose. You know, his microcosmos. You know, his, his simple piano pieces for the um, that start simple and get progressively more complex. Uh, I and I love the first few books. I mean, to me, it's like he's reduced some really big ideas into a very easy thing, and that's what I'm trying to do with my music. Trying to reduce some tricky math ideas or something that something that may not necessarily should be able to work, but it can, but I'm trying to do it on a scale that's not um, over people's heads. You know, I'm not trying to, mm -hmm. you know, I, I want it. I mean, if I want it to be danceable, first of all, right. So uh, the ska beat is what, you know, I decided this is, this is where I can do it. Ska, it's instrumental. It's um, there, there is room for composing tricks and and it's fun and it's reggae and i'm a bass player so of course you know ska music became for me like just i i championed it after school in the 90s i decided to take it really seriously because i thought it was just you know i didn't need it ska to be really popular i just wanted to know that there existed a genre where i could you know where my music would be appreciated you know yeah there's a project you did kind of recently where um, you did a dub of um, Hepcats from out of nowhere, dub out of nowhere. That was awesome. Yeah. Wow. When they contacted me about that, I was like, holy shit. 
just amazing. You know, I, I've always loved that band. They're so good. Yeah. It sounds interesting. And I, I know you're, you're no, you're no stranger to um, using more like scum rock steady type beats for dub, because I think what I, what I kind of want to ask about is like, you know, you think about King Tubby and a lot of this sort of famous dubs and it's usually really slow, usually really tripped out and it has a certain vibe to it. Are you doing, you know, do you know, you listen just for instance, the, the, from dub out of nowhere, it has a different vibe because the, the beats different. Yeah. Yeah. If you had any, anything to say about that. I, I, I know that, um, uh, Ska's never gotten a good dubbing back in the sixties, you know, that it's like, it never really happened <laughs> originally, you know? Um, but I love doing that. I love using more, uh, uh, accelerated tempos and and different beats all together there's a lot of i've been making dubs of brazilian music that totally works you know i mean as long as it's danceable as long as there's a you know a drummer that you can count on literally it can be done you know and, and i love showing that i love showing that you know a lot of these arrangements a lot of the songs that you listen to um well these days you can automate it on a computer and people decide when the guitars come in or not when the keyboard comes in and that kind of thing, breakdowns. And these, these are arrangements that are made on the computer. But, you know, back in the day, people would make these arrangements live on the desk, you know, rock bands, you know, it's a picture of, I think it was a uh, Pink Floyd. Maybe it was the Beatles. I can't remember. There's a picture of them in the studio and at least three of them on the mixing desk doing their, you know, assigned parts, their roles of like bringing up faders or not. Because there'd be 24 faders, so you'd have like three guys there. They'd each, you know, have eight. You know, you've got eight fingers, and then you're done. And and they'd sit there and go, like, all right, all right, bring out the folks. All right, bah, all right, take them out now. All right, yeah, blah, blah, blah. you know, real whole operation coordinated. Yeah. So so I mean, in that sense, I mean, and that's on some of, you know, we'd never know because it doesn't sound like dub, but. A lot of the arrangements we hear uh, back in the day were were made, you know, in real time. Oh yeah, just I want to. Ha I have a we we kind of strayed a little from Virgin City, and, and before we move on, I want to ask. There was a lot of different recordings made there, be it songs or albums. I was wondering if you had any. What What do you feel like are a couple of the best? You know, looking back at the Virgin City days, like what are some of the best recordings to come out of Virgin City? I always think of a Rocketeers record. As the pinnacle, yeah, yeah. It's sort of the pinnacle. It's, it was the most daring, it's the most Sergeant Pepper. It was the most like that guy was just he just he wouldn't get tired. He wouldn't sleep, you know. I mean, he and he'd keep us going there, and me and Jay would work in shifts around T because you know he just. He wasn't sleeping, you know. Jay's like, I'm done. Can you come down? Yeah. You know, and then I'm like, all right. You know, come in there. And Toby's like, all right, we got a fresh fresh engineer. Let's go. And he's got more ideas and stuff. <laughs> Motherfucker <laughs> wouldn't sleep. And then I finally go home and Jay would come back. And, and he had, you know, T would have taken a nap of like half an hour or something. Then he blink, blink. Hey, who wants an egg sandwich? Let's go. You know. <laughs> <laughs> amazing amazing so that's I, yeah. I have fond memories of uh really busting my ass over that record jay more than me i actually i was actually listening to that record today it's so good 
I really enjoy that one. That was that was um, just crazy undertaking. And and for example, there's the I story lesson mm-hmm. uh, where he's talking about you know Ethiopia and that those drums were from my first recording at Persian City with Eddie from a song called Damage that only appears on a compilation, Virgin City Comp. And those drums were used many, many times, but that's one of the instances. We'll be right back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so 2002 is when you moved to Brazil, I believe. Yes. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about what, why you chose Brazil? You know, it's really hard to talk a little about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the problem I've had, and, and, and it's the question I always get. And, you know, I started writing an essay about all the reasons and uh, because I was like, this has to be written out and just totally, you know, it's more than I could say in an interview. It's more than, but there were, it was a combination of forces at once, working at once. Uh, one of them was that I was tired of living in New York because by the 90s, Giuliani was mayor and he was kind of making it kind of just sad for everybody. And I had been touring in Europe and I was like, oh my God, you know, musicians are treated with dignity here. It's, it's, it's really amazing. You know, so there was, there was this pull from Europe. I was getting a push from New York. And then in 98, I was playing bass with the Toasters in Brazil. I got to see Sao Paulo. And I was like, holy shit, this is, you know, New York used to be like this. And it never gets cold here. Oh my God. And people are so nice. And wow, what's that fruit? You know, it's like, oh, you like that? You know, there's, you know, there's more than that. And, and then, and then like three hours away and you're in, on a tropical beach, it's really close to the, to the ocean. A lot of people don't talk about it because it's 20 million people, concrete jungle. And then like three hours in a car and you're on, you know, your feet are in the sand and palm trees. And it's just incredible. I was like, oh, I can do this, you know, and nobody was really into the uh, downtown. They still aren't. I live in the center of town, which is not very appreciated, valorized, but I, I like it because I'm close to all the trains and the, the buses and um, all the stores. If I feel like I'm in Manhattan downtown, you know, yeah, it's a little sketchy, but I remember, you know, I lived in New York in the eighties and I was like, I know what that is. You know, I lived in Harlem in the eighties for seven years, 11 years. And it was like, this is okay, you know. Yeah, honestly, which one was sketchier? Down here is sketchier these days. <laughs> these okay. Days. It used to be better. When I got down here in 2002, it was much better. Okay. But it's been uh, ever since the new regime in uh, 2017, the uh, quality of life has just been nosediving. You know? mm. So, all right. So there was... First, there was me thinking, ah, I don't like New York anymore. And then there was me thinking, ah, I'm going to live in... Budapest, where nobody speaks English. I'm so tired of English. 
And then I see Sao Paulo and I'm like, it doesn't get cold. It's got a New York scheme about it. It's got the same diversity that New York has in people and uh, which you couldn't say about Budapest. Um, and that was really important to me. If I was going to leave the big city, you know, I, I, the only thing that was going to please me would be a bigger city. And, and I was like, Sao Paulo is so goddamn big. You know, it's, it's incredible. Just amazing. Really drew me in. And after a couple of visits here, I really knew I wanted to be here. So I left after 9-11. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the kick in the ass right there. 9-11, I was like, oh, my God. Fuck these people. You know, it's like, um, I got to explain. I was working at a studio for TV, post-production, and 9-11 is going on. You know, we're on 45th Street watching on the, the TV. And, and, and then somewhere in the afternoon, like, uh, uh, one of the producers decided they still wanted to work like ah fuck this let's get to work i was like jesus all right okay you know my producer for the day and they're on the phone they're trying to get shit to happen nobody's picking up at nbc nobody's picking up at their house the nanny has gone home the bridges are closed and this person slams the phone down and goes this whole day is just so inconvenient I'm thinking that's not the word. That's that's fucking horrible. That's these are the people I, you know, I have around me, and uh, and then I, you know, I got wise and I paid off my debts and I did it slowly. Took Portuguese lessons, and came down in February, twenty two thousand two. So now it's been twenty years that I'm here. So I know you do. Um... Obviously, you have the studio, you do producing and stuff, but you play music or you have been playing music down there as well, right? Off and on. Um, I play more with the, the, the dub show than actually playing the bass. But lately, lately, I mean the last couple of years, I've been playing in a Bob Marley cover band. And it's awesome. Oh, my God. I was so over playing in playing covers because I used to pay my bills that way when I was getting started in New York, I was playing wedding bands, you know? So I never, you know, I was so happy to not play covers. And when I decided not to play, to become an orchestral musician, that way in the sense I was saying no more covers, you know, I want to play, I want to develop my own music. And I still feel that way, but there's something about Aston Barrett, family man, the bass player for the Whalers, that I owe so much to his style and that his bass lines have become a school in itself on how to play the bass and, and, and how to play reggae. Much the same way that James Jamerson, bass player for Motown, became a school, you know, of, of, of bass playing. And, uh, so I love playing those lines. I really, I, I dig in. I try and get every note, you know. I've seen some Beatles fanatics, and they get every note that Paul McCartney ever played, <laughs> and it's amazing. But for me, it's like uh, my Paul McCartney is a family man. I love playing that shit. I know you did a band called uh, Firebug. Yes, down here in Sao Paulo. Yeah, was that when you first moved out there? It is. I, um, I came down here with... with huge amount of help from my friend Rodrigo Cerqueira who was playing drums in a band called Scuba ska band that opened for the Toasters and that's how we got 
that's how we became friends. And when he heard I was coming down here to live, he was like, dude, stay at my place until you find your own. Let's get, let's do some stuff. Let's get you working. Let's, he did more than anybody to, to get me situated down here. And he's like, I want to do this band. And there's this kid, Machado, brings him over to my place. He plays and sings, plays, you know, the acoustic guitar and sings some tunes. I love it. Rodrigo's like, let's make a record. I'll bank it. You produce it. His songs. Boom. And that's what we did. That was the first, that was the first record. I wanted to call it Machado because he's the talent. And I just thought like me and Rodrigo were more like the Chris Blackwells of the of the thing, you know, and, and I didn't, I wanted to call it Machado. I wanted him to have, to have the cover onto himself. But Rodrigo was like, no, it's going to be a band. We'll call it Firebug. And that's what it was for three records. They, were, they did three records. They toured in Europe. Never got to the States. But um, I'm really proud of those guys because it's really probably the first, like, traditional ska record to come out of, come out of Brazil, you know, with, like, real uh trad treatment you know sonically musically the arrangements you know i got heavily involved with the arrangements i wrote all the horn parts most of the melodies on on the instruments you know yeah i've um researched a little bit of um brazilian uh, bands that play ska and, and um it seems like there's a lot of bands you know in the 80s 90s 2000s that have ska songs but not really ska bands you know it's just like sort of one bag of tricks and then they have other rhythms and other styles that makes me think of os paralamas who are were the most famous band in brazil that played scott tunes yeah they started i think in the late 70s and then ska stuff i think came in the 80s yep and they had the access because they're 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 all the all the guys in paralamas their parents were in the military so they had uh -huh. access to the outside world and shit they probably heard scout before anybody and they do it nice. They do it, you know, they do it right. Yeah, they got some great songs. Um, but the idea of somebody doing a, a more, a strictly like traditional type of ska record hadn't really happened before though. So the the rhythm and appreciation for ska's pop music had been around a while. Well, there was that band, Rodrigo's first band, Scuba, that they were basically a ska band, very much modeled after the Toasters. You know, mm -hmm. that was their, that was their version of ska, you know. A um, couple more that were like punk bands, like Subitones, um, the Django's. Um, but I really, I you know, we, I think, Firebug was the only band that actually went to a, a studio with a tape machine and had like you know horn arrangements and you know just a whole other level of production, you know, than than most ska bands would. Not like they didn't have ska in Brazil. It's just you know, first time it was like trad ska, well done, traditionally recorded. Mm, I see. And uh, and I remember being so proud of that record. I brought it up to to Belgium in two thousand three when when I was working with the Moon Invaders, and they were like, "Oh my god, this is amazing! It's incredible!" And then somebody's like, "Hey, have you heard this new record yet? It's a new band called the Agrolites." And then I heard that and I was like, oh, God damn it. This is so good. I was, I was vexed. I was very pissed off. I was like, I thought I had the new shit. I thought I had the best, you know, I thought I had the best shit this year. And then I hear the goddamn agrolites and they're killing it. 
<laughs> I felt the same way. I felt the same way when I was playing bass for Desmond Decker. Um, the Scofflaws had opened for him in 92. And then he lost his bass player. I had to go back to England. So I went on for the, the part, the half of the tour that Scofflaws weren't opening. I jumped in the Desmond Decker van and was their bass player. My first time seeing all of, you know, going across Canada, uh, my first time going across U.S., my first time touring in North America. Got all the way to California. And, you know, the guys in the band, um, in Desmond's band, English blokes that they were like, oh, we love the Scott Floors. They're the only ones doing it right. The only ones doing it. And we were so proud of ourselves. We really thought we're the only ones trying to sound like the Scatolites. And, and then we're in L.A. and the opening band is Hepcat. <laughs> you know enough said right I, I mean like like the guitar player he, he turns to me he's like sorry rice but they've really got it you know i mean they're they're the best you know i was like i know fuck them fuck, fuck me <laughs> <laughs> and 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 i felt the same way when i heard the aggalites yeah so i really did. i felt like uh, it's just like wow they you know i think i'm onto something and somebody just does it 10 times better or whatever. So you, um, so you've put out four records under your own name, Victor Rice. Yes. So we have at version city from 1999 in America, I think was 2003. You did that one, right? You recorded that one in the U S and you mixed it after you moved to Brazil. That one was done both in U S and Brazil. Most of the rhythm tracks were done. All of the rhythm tracks were done in Brooklyn at Tickless place. Um, I finished them a certain way in Brazil, and I also siphoned off uh, one of the drum tracks a few times and created other songs with it. And then I went back to New York at one point. So there are three three songs on In America that are, there's the Sao Paulo version and the New York version. The, and the main difference is that I had wanted horns originally, but in Brazil I didn't know anybody. So when I got to, so I would finish it myself with uh, using keys and uh, melodica, maybe guitar to play the melodies. I got back to New York. I decided to finish them the way I originally intended. So there are two or three songs that are uh, um, that have two versions: the New York version with horns and the Sao Paulo version with melodica and stuff. It was definitely, it's definitely a. a uh, uh, it's, it, you know, wasn't intended to be this, but it is a document of my, you know, uh, migration. Okay. So then you have smoke from 2017 and drink from 2020. So kind of have a big gap between your second and, and third record. Would, did you feel like, a an inspiration sort of recently to start doing solo records again? Um, I, why would I move? I, I guess I just got more into engineering, you know, and that's mm -hmm. where the work was. And I still was, I, I did tour with the In America. Um, but there was something about writing more music. I mean, I was always writing stuff down. You know, I always have my notebooks. And if I think of an idea in my head, I can write it down without having to play it on an instrument. I just, you know, sketch it out. And uh, so I never stopped doing that. But it was in 2013. I mean, it seems like a long stretch, but it wasn't so long is what I'm getting at, you know, because I, I think it was like a 10 year stretch maybe. 
because in 2013, I started writing a lot of stuff and I was stuck in Europe for a while. And I decided to go to Nico's place, Nico Leonard of Moon Invaders and now of Batasonic. And he has a studio. And he helped me to record a bunch of stuff. And that became Smoke. It came out in 2017, but we started work on it in 2013. Oh, okay. And when Easy Star chose to put it out, I was thrilled. You know, it's the best label I've ever worked for. And uh, by far, they just, you know, have their shit so together. And it's everything's so, you know, runs so well, you know. Um, so I was thrilled when they wanted to put it out. And they're like, give us another one. And I was like, oh, that's easy. Now that the you know, faucet's been turned on, I've been writing a lot of shit, you know. And, and um, so Drink came out pretty easily. And actually, I'm going to complete the trilogy. I have, uh, in April, I recorded all the basic tracks for the next record, the third of the trilogy. Uh, title unknown. We're calling it Game of Horns for now. <laughs> um so that's that's been that's been awesome very very satisfying to put these records out with easy star because they really they really get it and they really back it up they're really making me feel supported on this you know so i'm doing them all the same way recording in belgium mixing in sao paulo calling people from all around the world to finish you know for finishing touches and, you know very much they'll all they'll, all three will be made in the same vein I like the covers too. The uh, would you call that Art Deco? I'm like style. I don't know. What happened was um, the first one was just a, a, a fluke. I really liked the image. I don't know how I found it online. I think I must have put like tiki cats or something, or tiki <laughs> designs or something. And then these cats showed up. I was like, oh, that's really cute. So I put it on my sound cloud playlist when i showed it to the guys at easy star and and i'm like i still don't have an idea for art they're like oh we love the cats I'm like, ah, oh, yeah right you know it's not bad so i found the artist and i told him i wanted two cats specifically nico's cats bongo and quika two black cats they have very certain personalities they're awesome they're my buddies and i wanted them on, on, so she painted Bongo and Quika, decided to call it Smoke, made it red. All of these choices were not really um, based on anything deeper than, you know, just looks cool. Looks like, you know, 50 style. Looks like it sounds, you know, good. Yeah. And then they're like, do another one, do, do a trilogy. So I was like, so then, you know, the idea of trilogy is like the next one will be gold and the third one will be green. All right, that's sorted. We'll call it drink because it's another vice. It's an English word that Brazilians use. Um, it's a verb. It's a noun. Has that in common. And I was like, what would the animal be? All right, the animal would be fish because fish drink. So now the next one, I know it's going to be green. I don't know what the name is and I don't know what the animal is going to be. It's going to be green. I'm calling it the green album already, but you know, <laughs> the band calls it game of horns. Cause I really, I run them through it this time. You know, it's not meant to sound complicated, but it is complicated for the musicians. It shouldn't be complicated to listen to, you know, a song like five, five is really tough for the musicians to play that one on drink. 
Why, why is it so difficult? Well, all the divisions. Um, it's called five because there are five chords in the song, but each chord only has two beats. Mm. So the chords repeat themselves after two and a half bars. So then five bars, they repeat themselves, you know, at the one. And in, um, and then the horn line is four bars. And then it's another three bars. And then it's another three bars. So that's 10. So that works out. That fits. But the drummer has got a two bar drum beat. And so he only, it only feels right to him at 10 bars. Like every 10 bars is when he has to bring it back. So the form is 10 bars long and it's hard uh, uh, to count. I know Nico, the problem with Nico is that he's a musician. I don't mean like, oh, he's not a drummer, he's a musician. I mean like, you know, there's a joke, you know, what do you call a guy who hangs out with musicians? Drummer. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the truth is he went to conservatory and he makes horn arrangements and he's you know, fluent on the piano and, and percussion. And he, he's completely trained like me, two nerds. We do the same thing. We write down our ideas, just give the music to the musicians, press play and let's go. And very controlling and sort of everything's all written down already, you know? So he has problems following the chart. He's listening to it and he's listening so well that it, it messes him up every time. That's my, every time you hear is that fifth chord go back to the first chord when he, when it shouldn't, you know? And then, the, and if he starts listening to the horns, he gets really messed up because first phrase is four bars, but then the second phrase is three. The third phrase is three. And so he has to sort of like not listen in order to play it right, you know? <laughs> um, and, and the horn players, they, they're still learn like their solos. You can tell there's, they haven't had a chance. It's been two years. We released in May of 2020, it was released into a pandemic vacuum. There was no way to tour on it. And we only started playing it last, this April, we played one show, Freedom Sounds Festival. It was a pisser, it was so good, it was so good. But you can tell that the musicians, their first time, um, the soloists trying to navigate these changes, you know, the way they go and trying to make four out of five, you know, trying to square the circle <laughs> um, but, but as far as people on the, on the dance floor, they're just like, funk, baby, boom, 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 boom. You know, it's just, it's so danceable if, if you, if you don't have to play it. <laughs> yeah. And then that, that horn part that's, uh, four and then three and then three is, uh, do the four and the three part, like mirror each other in any way? Like, do they start um, out with the same, a similar phrase? Yes. Yeah. Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> so it's just extra, extra hard. It's like the first phrase gets cut down and that, that cut down version gets repeated and then you're at the back and then you're up top again. And Jeez. it, um, it, yeah, it's that one. Those poor guys. So why do you hate all the musicians in your band? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I do, I, I, I do have to pay them. <laughs> true. True. Got to make them earn it. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, like I would, I, I would be embarrassed to ask these guys to do this kind of thing without being sure. paid, you know, and uh, I, I 
you know, don't, I try not to get myself into situations where they can't get paid. They yeah. certainly get paid before I do. Um, and, and they respect that. And they, and they love, they love the game. You know, they love figuring it out. I know that like, if I get these guys on the road for a month, they're going to be, they're going to be playing the, the, the hell out of these tunes. You know, they're going to have figured out how they want to get around that, that, particular curve on a, in the harmonic thing and they'll develop some tools and tricks you know i mean they need a month to get into that they, you, you need you need time on the road to really um get a tune worked in you know thank you so much for listening to in defense of ska if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.